Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. So we're continuing our exploration through more, thinking through as a church what it means especially to know Jesus more. Um, Our mission, our purpose as a church is to know Jesus more and to make him more known, isn't it? Or at least that's what we've started saying since the calendar ticked over to 2020. And part of thinking through how we can pursue looking more like Jesus, living more like Jesus, has been thinking through um, a little acronym, a little acronym of meek, um, that Jesus is someone who pursued more, wasn't satisfied with the way things were, but acted, and his drive was to change things, was to press on that he was someone who enjoyed life, celebrated that which was good. He could see the good that was in the world. He wanted more of that goodness and wasn't afraid of celebrating it and enjoying it. And this morning, we come to the next E, which is eat with others. Jesus is someone who, remarkably, when you stop, when you think about it, is genuinely remarkable, ate and ate with other people. That the eternal... God, the Son who was there at the very beginning before food was even created, spent time at a table eating food with other people. Actually, it's a a really massive theme in the Gospels, and that is even clearer in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, that's a little bit small, and I'm going to figure out which side I should or should not be standing in. But in the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters... There are nine different occasions where Jesus is recorded to be at a meal with other people. This is not to speak of all the other times food is involved. These are specifically nine times he stopped and he's eating with other people. There's um, Levi's dinner party. Alice read to us from the Gospel of Mark, where Matthew, the tax collector, also known as Levi, Uh, It's called to follow Jesus, and the first thing that happens is that they have a big banquet with lots of Levi's friends and associates. People don't like that. Jesus is there. There's Luke 7, tears at tea time, when he's at the house of a Pharisee, and a woman comes and weeps at Jesus' feet. That's another meal, very famous incident. There's food for 5,000. When they're out, um, and they've been teaching and learning all day long, And Jesus multiplies from some meager resources, food, not just for him and his disciples, but everyone who's gathered there. There's the incident of Mary versus Martha. We think about that story as who has it right? Um, The one sat at Jesus' feet or the one that's trying to serve him, that's at a meal. There's washing for lunch where they're sat down, they're having food. And the question comes up, well, have you prepared properly? Have you and your disciples, Jesus, prepared properly for this? Have you done the ceremonial washing and cleansing and what have you? There's Sunday dinner, um, the incident where Jesus is again at another meal filled with all sorts of people, by the way. 
um, those that would be called sinners and those that would be called Pharisees. And there's a man who needs his help. There's a man who needs healing. And so the whole thing that happens, the discussion at that meal is whether it's right for Jesus to do good on the Sabbath. Now, I know what you're thinking. The Sabbath is a Saturday, not a Sunday, but Saturday dinner didn't really make sense when I was making the slides. So there you go. Um, Calling ahead. Can't remember why I've called it that, so I might look it up. Um, The Passover, a meal that's recorded, Jesus specifically having it once with his followers, um, but presumably he, he celebrated it each and every year when he was with them. And of course, one of the most, I think, wonderful meals recorded in the scriptures is the resurrection breaking of bread with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Not only was Jesus eating with people part of his life and his ministry before the cross, but as Jesus is resurrected, as he is that new humanity, as he is the person that he is going to be for eternity evermore, they're still eating, they're still feasting, they're still being with other people. Calling ahead. What was that? Luke 19. Is this with Zacchaeus? Yes, where Jesus invites himself over to have food with Zacchaeus. Um, You see, someone described the Gospel of Luke as a story or a book where Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or on his way from having been at a meal. And when you look at it, how it's spread out there, how everything that really happens centers around meals, you see that this is incredibly, incredibly true. Now, it isn't just mind-blowing that the eternal God, the one who spoke everything into being, eats. What I think is really key for us to see and to notice as we work our way through uh, the life of Jesus, when we notice that he spent time eating over and over and over again with different groups of people, we need to recognize that Jesus is someone who used meals. Jesus is someone who used meals. Um, There are times in Jesus' life where he displayed, like, real humanity. When he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, when he spoke about his thirst, when he was hungry, when he had fasted for 40 days. But Jesus, coming to special occasions, coming to different people's houses, being invited, inviting himself, wasn't just about satisfying that human hunger that he had, that need, that necessity for food. Meals in Jesus's life were an opportunity where through which he would achieve a heck of a lot more than simply feeding and nourishing his body. Um, Quick book club, book club. You see, I don't do it often. I don't even know what it's called. Book plug is this, A Meal with Jesus, a book by a a chap called Tim Chester. If you want to read anything by Tim Chester, I can heartily recommend it. He's absolutely tremendous. But this book looks at a number of these meals in the um, Gospel of Luke and explains how, shows how at each meal, Jesus is doing something more than just feeding himself, that he's seizing upon a very special, a very human opportunity to teach and to reveal, and to carry out his ministry. If you want to borrow that copy, I think that's mine, so you can. I'm even sure that John has got a copy as well, so uh, by all means have that. 
I just want to help us this morning to scratch the surface by thinking about three of those meals and how Jesus used them um, very, very intentionally. Luke chapter 5, it's the Luke equivalent of, as I said, Alice is reading earlier. Um, When Jesus calls this man called Levi, in Luke, this is how it's recorded. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And as people tended to, when Jesus invited them to follow him, they did. So, leaving everything behind, Levi got up and began to follow him. Now, what is the first thing that happens in Levi's life, in this new relationship, following Jesus, trusting Jesus? Levi decided to host a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. And there were a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, people have preached many sermons on this about how Matthew or Levi, whichever name you want to use to refer to him, took the initiative, had met Jesus, and he wanted to invite his friends around to give them an opportunity to see Jesus for who he truly was, to come to trust in him in the way that Levi had. But how did Jesus use this opportunity? How did Jesus use this opportunity? It's interesting. We sometimes like to polarize the time that Jesus spent, either with people like tax collectors or with people like Pharisees, um, religious people and irreligious people. What's fascinating at so many of the meals that Jesus was a part of is how the people gathered were a complete and utter mix. That always there were those who people would say he shouldn't mix with, and people who uh, were those that were probably expecting to mix with Jesus. And how Jesus uses this meal right here is to make a statement about what he's about. That he is someone who has come to welcome those who, in conventional thinking, he shouldn't. You see, that's the exact accusation the Pharisees and the scribes are making. They're asking the question, but they're really pointing the finger, aren't they? Why is he, this one who is coming saying all manner of things about himself, claiming to be this religious teacher, this religious leader, why is he willing to sit down and eat food with the likes of them? That shouldn't happen. That's the thinking that's going behind it. Perhaps, actually, this meal reveals something else to us. It reveals the the power that a meal can have, of how sitting down, how eating with someone in some way, shapes, or form, validates them, shows that you've got some sort of care, concern, some skin in the game. You don't just sit down and eat with people you don't know and you don't care about. If Jesus is eating with these people, then somehow there's an implied relationship and link. And Jesus uses this very opportunity to reveal a wonderful, wonderful truth that he has come, not for the people he should, in conventional thinking, be spending time with, but he has come for those that he shouldn't be spending time with. 
It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It is the sick. This holy man, this one who has been set apart to offer grace, he's come to be with those people who need his grace. Jesus used that meal to teach something about himself. We flick ahead to um, Luke chapter 9. You know what happens. Most of the story will have been taught to you at some point in your life. It's Jesus, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 10 says this, When the apostles returned, they'd been out. They'd been telling people about the kingdom of God. They'd been healing people. They'd been casting out demons. They'd been doing all that. They reported to Jesus everything that they had done. And showing quite a lot of compassion, Jesus took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. Jesus wanted them to have some downtime. They'd been very busy. They'd been kind of pressed upon for a long time. And he was looking, he was seeking for them to have a little bit of a quiet retreat. When the crowds found out, it says, though, verse 11, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed all those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to, to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. They seem to have genuine concerns. They seem to have the best interests of the people there in mind. But Jesus, he sees that they're going to have a meal and he's going to use that meal for a very specific purpose. So he challenges his disciples. Verse 13, you give them something to eat, he told them. Oh, we've no more than five loaves and two fish, they said. Unless we go and buy food for all these people, and about 5,000 men were there, let alone women and children. So he told the disciples, have everyone sit down in groups of about 50. And they did what he said, and he had them all sit down, and then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and he broke, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and everyone Eight, and everyone was filled. And even at the end of it, they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Verse 18. A little bit later, while he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Like, having been with me at this special meal, this miraculous meal, Who do the crowds say I am? They had a couple of answers. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you're Elijah. Um, Still others that you are one of the ancient prophets who has come back. Jesus says, well, you were at the meal. You've been with me actually for a long time, many meals. Who do you say that I am? Famously, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Do you see how Jesus didn't just use this opportunity to satisfy the hunger of the people who had come physically, but he used this opportunity of sitting with people, of eating with people, to reveal himself to everyone. He used that meal for a very, very specific purpose. One more, probably my favorite, chapter 24. Look ahead to chapter 24. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. He's been falsely accused, falsely arrested, falsely convicted, um, sentenced to death. He's been executed. He's been buried. He has 
risen again. And now he meets a couple of people who had been following him for some time. Chapter 24, start at verse 13. Now, the same day, Resurrection Sunday. Two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, or Emmaus, if you prefer, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. Jesus' rest, his trials, his crucifixion, what have you. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. They were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you are having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that's happened in these days? It was big news. What things? He asked innocently. He knew. He knew. Of course he knew. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. It was our hope that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. You know, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened, and he told them what was going to happen then. Some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who had told them that he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. My guess is they'd been arguing about whether these reports were right or not, whether these were true reports that they'd heard. Jesus said to them, how foolish, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. It wasn't the end of it. Verse 28, they came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us. It's almost evening. Now the day is almost over. So he went in and he stayed with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, that he blessed it and broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. I think it's just one of the most wonderful meals. This and in the Gospel of John when Jesus is there on the beach and they have that breakfast of fish that shows us just how kind of fleshy how real resurrection life is that Jesus wasn't just um, in the form of a human for 33 years but he has taken humanity into himself he has brought humanity close to divinity but that's not the point we want to make Jesus was using this meal did you see it to help them to see that everything that he had said was true that everything that he had taught them as he had walked with them around for three years, was true. That everything that he had said in his holy scriptures was true. That he truly, really, absolutely was the one who would come to put everything right. Now, Jesus could have just told them that, but he used a meal. He used the opportunity of sitting down with them 
of showing them love, of showing them care, of showing them attention, not rushing. Jesus didn't just want to stop for the night, have a feed, get his head down, and carry on his journey the next day. He wanted them to recognize, to realize that everything he had said was true. Just three of the meals, we see that Jesus is so much more, so much more than about using food as a means to satiate hunger. But he wants to use the experience of dining together for very specific purposes. Now, this repeated feasting on Jesus' part led to another accusation. We looked at this a little bit last week when we considered Jesus as someone who enjoys life, who recognizes the good. Food, just so you know, is good. The clue that Jesus is eating it even after he's resurrected or that uh, the description of glory is of a banquet and a feast is a clue that food is a good part of God's creation. But he was so, so in the habit of using meals, of using feasts, of using parties, that people were able to make this accusation against him. A remarkable thing to say, that he was a glutton and a drunkard. They actually were suggesting that he was too concerned with eating and drinking and being with other people. It's amazing to think, actually, that not only was this an accusation that was made against Jesus, but this was an accusation that was made against his followers. Back in Luke 5, just after that um, encounter with Levi and Levi's friends, in verse 33, the same accusation is made about his disciples. They say John's disciples, John the Baptist, well, they fasted, offered prayers often, And those are the Pharisees, their followers, their disciples, they do exactly the same. But yours, this is what they said of them, yours eat and drink. There was something remarkable about how they used food, how they used drink, how they used coming together. It was part of, in our modern description, part of their DNA. Not only Jesus, but his followers were people who seized upon the power of food and meals Consider another very important meal in the Gospels, the Passover meal. A very important meal already in their culture, in their community, in their way of faith. To remember what God had done for them, amongst them, in the Passover at Exodus. And Jesus takes that and he says, I want to use that for a very specific purpose. He taught them what we now call the communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever it is. He taught them to use that meal themselves and ourselves, not just to feed our bodies, but to remind ourselves, to feed our spirits, to feed our souls of his life, of his death, of his coming again. And he said to do it as often as you meet together. I want you to eat together. I want you to have meals. Meals, 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 meals. Right. I'm laboring this point. I'm trying to paint this picture for you as Jesus, as someone who ate with others. And when we learn about Jesus, we've been saying, haven't we, that we want to be like Jesus. So we should, like the disciples and like his instructions here, be people who are eating meals with other people. But I ask the question, why 
don't we get accused of the same sort of thing? Why aren't we called gluttons and drunkards? Why isn't the accusation of us that you are people who strangely eat and drink with other people? We've got lots of excuses, I think. Sometimes we'll say that we're too busy. Too busy to eat. It's weird when you think about it, isn't it? I think probably if we took a survey this morning, we'd say at least 21 times a week, we stop our busyness in some way, shape, or form and eat. I'm assuming we all eat three meals a day, if not more. All we have to do, all we have to do is do that eating in the company of someone else. It is genuinely that simple. We are not too busy. We and others, you and I, are going to stop today to eat food. So we have the opportunity to eat with other people. I was trying to think of an example of this. My barber. Sometimes I like to meet up with outside of his barber shop. I just message him and I say, you tell me when you are having lunch. I don't eat lunch until gone three. But I will come and I will sit with you and chat with you just when you are eating your lunch. I've had lunch. Fine. New question. When are you going to go and have a coffee? I will stop what I'm doing and I will come and we can have a coffee together. We are not too busy to eat or spend time in that sort of arena with other people. We might say, it's too costly. It's too costly. I couldn't be the sort of disciple who is accused of eating and drinking with other people, who questions are raised, why are you spending so much time with other people around meals, around coffees, around social kind of occasions? Because I just don't have the resources. I just don't have the finances to do it. To that, I would say, well, it needn't be as costly as you think. We probably have television shows like Come Dine With Me and big American TV series and films which paint a picture of hospitality as banquets with various cutleries and cups that are used at the right occasion and courses to meals and things like that. I mean, who here would turn their nose up to a properly nice cheese and potato pie. Nobody would. You would. Oh, well, Daniel, you've got, you've got medical dispensation on this account, okay? Just so you know, anybody who's inviting Daniel and Sharon and Airline around for food, allergic to cheese. So you can have dry potatoes. Um, it doesn't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be fancy to be enjoyable. It doesn't need to be fancy and expensive to be good. Do you know what I really love about some of the stories of Jesus eating with other people as well in Luke's gospel? He does it at their expense. And he's not embarrassed to do it. Levi is the one who throws the party. Zacchaeus comes to have a look and he says, Oh, Zacchaeus, if you're so keen to have a look, have me round. I'm coming over. Isn't that immense? Jesus is just like, I'm actually, at this time, I could multiply food and give it to you. But I don't have anything. I'm going to let you get the food in. He wants to spend time with people, and so it, it doesn't need to be costly. The real expense 
is the effort, isn't it? The real expense is the effort. We can be way, 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 way too obsessed with how much things cost in order to impress. Have you ever received a card from somebody? Just a little note saying, thinking of you in this time, at this occasion. I mean, cards, I mean, cards can be expensive. Cards can cost a pound. And yet it means something to us, doesn't it? When people have made the effort, we value it. You might say it's too intimate eating with someone. I don't know people well enough to invite them out for a meal. I don't know people well enough to be invited to theirs. I don't know people well enough that when I walk into a, um, a coffee shop or a cafe or something like that, that I feel I can sit myself down next to someone and have that special, valuable time with them. One of the things that we need to remind ourselves is that other people are just as desperate for relationships as we are. And more than that, other people are just as scared about making the first step, taking the initiative as we are, making themselves vulnerable. I was in a social situation uh, back in November, and uh, I, was, I knew I was going to be spending about six hours with a group of people who I knew visually, but I didn't know names, I didn't know backgrounds, I, I had this idea in my head that they knew each other better than they knew me, etc., etc. So I was nervous, and I let an hour, two hours, maybe even three hours go by without really engaging with anyone. So it was halfway through the day, I was pretty bored, because even though I was surrounded by people, I kind of felt a little bit like I was on my own. So I just plucked up the courage to make a silly comment to someone. And we ended up speaking for 45 minutes. Turns out that they lived in Amford. They used to be in the same form class as my sister. I know where he lives. I know his job. I, uh, you know, he was just as scared, in a sense, as I was to like, initiate that contact. And we're never going to have intimate relationships with people, the sort that Jesus developed around meal tables, if we're not willing just to have food with people we do not know very well. Brothers and sisters, we need to be people who eat with others. And when I say eat with others, it's just, you know, I think culturally, socially, we can say that extends as far as having a tea or a coffee with them as well, okay? I give you that. We need to be people who imitate Jesus in this way, who see the power of meals, who want to use them to make an impact. Well, what is the sort of impact that will be made well, I think it will be the exact same sort of impact as we see in Jesus and the meals that he has. We'll end up having to welcome those that socially and culturally we shouldn't be welcoming. Some people might not like it. Some people might throw mud at us, whatever you like. Hospitality has to be, like linguistically, to those who aren't like us. We'll be welcoming those who otherwise we shouldn't be spending time with. If we take time to have meals with people, we'll be helping to reveal who Jesus is, won't we? Because we're imitating Jesus to people. We'll be helping people to see that what Jesus said was true. 
that his coming, that his living, that his dying, that his sending his spirit to live in us changes us. That we're acting and we're living counterculturally against the norm. I think that the massive impact that will be made is that spending time with someone around the table or even around a coffee table will demonstrate a love and an interest and a care and a concern in a practical way for them that would be so hard to replicate in another way. And I've written a little equation down here that when we have food with people, that equals time with people. And when we spend time with people, that equals care and concern with people. And care and concern are two things that simply cannot go unnoticed. Imagine us taking those 21 opportunities we have every week to deepen relationships with people inside the church, with people inside our own physical families and those outside of the church. I mean, the impact is just mind-blowing, isn't it? That is the power of food. That is the power of being with one another. We're going to finish now and we're going to celebrate one of those meals the, the Passover when Jesus commanded his disciples, his followers, and us included in that, to eat together. And one of the things that Paul the Apostle picks up on when he is speaking about the communion meal is this very thing of bringing people together. This is a meal of unity. This is something that no matter your age, gender, your nationality, your level of schooling, uh, your views on Brexit... No matter that if you have faith, you trust in Jesus, this is something that brings us together. We celebrate this meal. We remember Jesus' life, his death, and we expect his coming back again by taking something as simple as a slice of gluten-free bread, tearing off a chunk and eating it, passing it to the person next to us and saying, you know, this is, this is a reminder, isn't it? This is a participation in Jesus Christ. He's changed us. You continue to change us. It's as taking as something as simple. I don't want to name names on what type of juice this is, but this little, tiny little drink, this little um, thing to, to wet our whistle, poured from the same cup. Again, bringing us together that we share in the same blood of Christ that has washed us that has cleansed us. Meals, if you don't believe me, are powerful, sometimes symbolic, but real things that bring us together. I'm going to pray, and then a couple of guys at the front, if you could help us to hand them out, that would be fantastic. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the goodness of food. We thank you how much joy it can bring us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who celebrate that. Don't see food as an enemy, but see it as a gift from you. Lord, I pray uh, thanks for the opportunity that meals give to us to stop. We need to do it multiple times a day, multiple uh, days a week. We need to stop and commit time to it. Lord, I pray that we would do that with other people, that meals wouldn't be an opportunity to cut ourselves off, but to gather and to invite other people in. Lord Jesus, we're about to celebrate your meal, the Lord's Supper. 
which is that wonderful declaration that you have invited us in, that you have come near to us and you have asked us to sit at your table as your family, as your brothers, as your sisters, as children of the Most High, as citizens in your glorious kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see we're not too busy, it's not too costly, and it is intimate, and that's a good thing. Help us to have an impact in Jesus' name as we feast on this food together and as we encourage and as we invite others to join with us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.